Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21. The very last chapter in the Gospel of John. If you were here with us last week, you might recall that Pastor Dan introduced to us the book of 1 Peter. This might have led some of you to believe that we were finally done with the Gospel of John and moving a little bit, moving the chains further down the field and uh, setting up shop in 1 Peter, that letter that Peter wrote to the church. And uh, Lord willing, that is what we will be doing in the weeks to come. But before we fully get into 1 Peter, there remains one last piece of unfinished business for us in John's Gospel. And it actually connects to the book that we're about to start studying again next week, because it has to do with the Apostle Peter, with the one that uh, would later on write the, the book, the, the letter that we call 1 Peter. It's not an overstatement to say that the, the events recorded for us in John 21, without them, we probably wouldn't have the letter of 1 Peter. Peter was always the reckless and impulsive leader of the apostles. That's how we see him pictured in the Gospels. He's always quick to support Jesus, but he's also quick to put his foot in his mouth. And of course, Peter had that devastating experience of denying that he even knew Jesus three times during the night when Jesus was arrested, leading up to the morning of the day when our Lord was crucified. Peter knew what it was like to let his Lord down, to begin to follow, and then to shrink back when that difficult moment came to boast of great things in his commitment for Jesus, only to come face to face with the limitations of his own courage and faith. One of the reasons we need John 21 is because historically, the early church needed to know that Jesus had forgiven Peter for his failure, that Peter had been restored. They needed to know that Jesus himself had restored Peter to a place of authority and service within the church. One of the reasons we need John 21 today is that most, if not all of us, in our walk of faith will at some point fail Jesus in some way that causes us to question whether or not we really are fit to follow after him. We need to know that Jesus is able and willing to forgive and restore us today. There are many pictures of forgiveness and restoration in the Bible, the thing that makes this particular encounter between Jesus and Peter so impactful is the language of love that is involved. As we're going to read in just a minute, Peter will be asked by Jesus, do you love me? My hope and prayer is that Jesus will be asking us all today the same question. Do you love me? Do you really love Jesus? And often we talk about what God requires from us as human beings. What is God's standard for us? What did God make us for? And we'll use terminology like God's standard is righteousness. God's standard is moral perfection. In order to live with God in heaven, we must be perfect as God is perfect, to be without sin. And so the flip side of that truth means that any sin, any lack of trust in God, any selfish desires or pride means that we are dead Spiritually, We are cut off from God and from heaven. And that is true. That's what the Bible teaches. But it's not the only language that the Bible gives us to understand the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes what is required of us is expressed in the language of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So is loving God any different from obeying God? And I would say no. Love is another way of expressing that obedience and faith and trust in God's goodness. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. When the first human beings, Adam and Eve, lived with God in sinless innocence in the garden, if you could conduct an interview with Adam and ask him, Do you love God? I think he would have trouble even understanding the question. What is not loving God? He might say. God is everything. He gave us everything. We delight in him constantly. We have no reason not to trust him or to love him. That's what the human heart was made for, to love God, to do what he commands us to do because it is the greatest pleasure and the deepest joy we could ever know. But the fall into sin has changed the direction of the human heart forever. Ask Adam and Eve after they were kicked out of the garden on account of their distrust and their disobedience. Ask them, does God love you? I think so. Do you love God? It's not the same anymore. Our hearts are not pure before him the way they they were before. Now our hearts are full of ourselves. And how does Genesis 3 end? What does the way back towards Eden look like? A terrifying angel and a fiery sword that turns every which way. You shall not pass. You don't belong here anymore. This is the new condition of the human heart in a world broken by sin. It no longer does the thing it was created to do. Our hearts do not love God by default. They don't trust him. They don't delight in him. Our inclination is towards sin and rebellion, towards self and ending in death. The whole human race was created to love God. It's what we're for. If the love God displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to save you, this is the end result. It must get to your heart. You must be returned to a position of trusting and obeying God. Your sinful heart of stone needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. Jesus didn't die only so that you would know he loves you. Jesus died and rose again so that by believing in Jesus' name and being washed in his blood, the end result is a new life that is actually lived for God, delighting in him, obeying him, free from sin and walking in love and righteousness. So the story that we're about to read in Peter's life is a story that is only possible because Jesus first loved Peter. Jesus loved him and gave his life for him, even though if it was up to Peter, it would have went the other way. Peter can be restored to Jesus because of Jesus' saving love for him. But what Peter's restoration consists of is that Jesus can ask Peter, Peter, do you really love me? And Peter can say, yes, Lord, I really do. If you understand Jesus' love for you, and if you believe he died to save you from your sins and has risen as proof that God made new life possible, then you will be moved to love him in return. Faith in Jesus produces love for Jesus, and love for Jesus leads you to follow Jesus. If you are his, then his love for you is greater than your sins against him, and he can use you. And all of that I say as introduction to what we're about to consider and apply to ourselves. Because when we come to John chapter 21 now, we think of what it means 
to answer the question that Jesus asked Peter. Do you love me? Asks Jesus. We're going to consider five characteristics of the kind of love that the gospel produces in us when we experience and believe in God's love for us. We love him because he first loved us. And today, let's reflect on what our love for him looks like. What characterizes it? What, what is our love for Jesus like? So let's read John chapter 21 now. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. So he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
you follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Wherever one, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We're going to be focusing more on the second half of the chapter, but read it all because it all hangs together. The first thing we're going to observe about the kind of love that the gospel produces in us towards Jesus is that it is a tested love. It's a love that has been tested or will be tested to show its quality. Back in the upper room on the night when Jesus was to be betrayed, in John chapter 13, Peter had spoken these reckless words to Jesus. He said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now listen to this extra detail that Luke records in his gospel, part of the same conversation. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Back then, Peter's love for Jesus was energetic and sincere, but it was untested. Peter thought he had the strength to do anything for Jesus. But Jesus warned him a time of testing was coming. And the truth was, before that night was over, Peter would have denied his Lord. This was, it was an absolutely miserable experience for him. Maybe you've had one like it. And if you haven't, maybe you will. And when it happens, when you do something so inexplicably backwards in your relationship with Jesus, when you do something that forces you to question whether you really belong to him after all, it's important to remember something. The thing that is being tested is not Jesus' love for you, but your love for Jesus. Satan would love to shake your faith by questioning God's love for you. Has the voice of doubt ever started accusing you in your own thoughts along these lines? Oh, God can't possibly love someone like you. Not someone like you. Not someone who's done something like that. Don't go down that road. Don't ask, does God really love me? Because of course he does. It is not God's love for you that gets put on trial when you fail him. Don't ask questions like, why does God love me? Or how could God love me? As if you would find the reason for God's love for you in your own achievements. You know those love tester arcade games where you put your quarter in and you, you grab onto the handle and the lights light up and it tells you how studly you are, how irresistible you are, how, how inwardly just automatically lovable you are? Well, if that machine knew everything about you, the way Jesus knows everything about you, it would never go past dead fish at the bottom. And if it told you any different, it would be lying to you. There is nothing about us that compels God to love us. But there is something in God's own nature that is the source of his loving kindness towards us. He made us. 
He loves us. You are lovable to the God that made you. Don't wander down the dark hole of asking, why does God love me? The road of self-justification leads to madness. God's love begins with him, and from his nature it lands on us. That's what it means when John wrote in 1 John 4, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the payment and removal of our sins. We love because he first loved us. When you sin, it is not God's love that's being tested. God's love is ever, ever on display on the cross. Instead, let Jesus ask you the question, do you love me? Three times, Jesus asked Peter the question. Three times. How many times did Peter publicly deny he knew Jesus? Three times. And now Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Three times. You may remember something that I had said last time we were in John 21, about three weeks ago, about the way God uses the questions he asks us. God doesn't ask us the question because he is lacking the answer. Jesus doesn't ask Peter if he loves him because Jesus needs to know. Jesus asks Peter the question because Peter needs to know. Peter needs to know. How much good do you think it did to Peter's soul? To look inside himself and know it was the truth all three times when he said, you know, Lord, you know that I love you. When the test comes in your life and your confidence comes crashing down through your own failure, your own sin, your own self-doubt, just remember that if you're truly his, it won't be your love for Jesus or your faith for Jesus that gets smashed on the rocks of life. The thing that gets broken will be your faith in yourself. That is what will get brought low. And that is painful, but it is necessary. But your faith in God's love toward you and your love toward Jesus will remain. It's an awful thing to finally come to the point where we admit, as Peter did, that we aren't going to earn God's love after all. But when we get there, it's for the better. Because we see the grace in God's love for us even more clearly. I think it's lovely that that morning Jesus didn't ask Peter, Peter, did you deny me? Peter knew. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And the rest of Peter's entire life of following after Jesus will not be defined by the time that Peter let Jesus down, but they'll be defined by the fact that Peter's love and trust and faith is not in himself, but it's in his Savior. The love the gospel produces in us towards Jesus is a tested love, and it's more precious for having been tested. The next thing we're going to say about our love for Jesus is something we've already touched on a little bit. It is a humble love. It's not love that boasts in its own accomplishments or its own power, but it's rightly anchored in Jesus' own love and forgiveness towards us. You may have noticed in our reading that there is something a little bit different about the first time Jesus asks the question in verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Not just do you love me, but more than these. There's a comparison. And it's not immediately obvious 
what the comparison is between. This could mean three things. Is Jesus referring to the fishing nets and the boats and asking Peter, do you love me more than your old way of life? Do you love me more than the security and self-sufficiency that came with doing things your own way? And that would make sense. Even though we've known how Peter felt about Jesus since the day that Peter and John and James and Andrew all left their nets and followed him. The second option is that Jesus could be referring to the other, the other apostles. As in saying, hey Simon, do you love me more than you love those guys? But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because the answer is pretty obvious in Peter's life. Jesus has already taught them that a disciple must love him even more than their father or mother in order to follow him. So comparatively, Jesus wouldn't be asking that much if he wanted to know whether or not Peter loved him more than the other six guys that he just ditched in the boat in order to jump into the water and be the first one to get to Jesus. There's a third option, though, and it's the one I'm going to follow through on this morning. Jesus is asking Simon, Simon, do you love me more than these others love me? Is your love for me more? Now, it might seem strange that Jesus would introduce this note of comparison between Peter and the other apostles. Jesus is not some puffed-up ego who needs to be stroked. He's not going to reward the servants that clamor over each other to, to flatter him and say the nicest things to him. This isn't King Lear asking his daughters, which of these, shall we say, doth love us the most? Jesus isn't the one introducing the comparison. Jesus is following up on a comparison that Peter was always more than willing to make in the past. Peter is the one who started comparing his love and his dedication to Jesus to those of the others. If you go back to that night when Peter would deny Jesus, Matthew 26, verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. But Peter spoke back, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. These others might leave you, Jesus, but not me. I love you more. Peter was more than willing to say back then, I love you more than they do. I'm more committed than they are. But if you look closely at Peter's answer in John 21, we see some evidence of growth and humility in Peter's life. Peter does no longer say, I love you more than they do. He simply says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter doesn't focus on the comparison anymore. He focuses instead on what Jesus knows of Peter's own love for him. We aren't going to dwell on this too much, but there is an interesting translation issue in John 21 here. Jesus asks Peter if he loves him three times, and three times Peter says, You know that I love you. But the English word for love, we have one, one word, and in Greek we have a whole bunch of words that get translated love in English. And if you're interested in this, you don't have to be, if you're interested in this, you can turn over uh, your sermon notes, and on the back, uh, there's a little outline there that kind of shows the difference in the words that are used. The first two times Jesus asks the question, he uses the word agape, which means selfless, faithful, unconditional love originating in the one that does the loving. That's the word that's always used for God's gracious love towards us in the Bible. But when Peter responds, he keeps using a different word. 
He uses the word phileo, which means brotherly love. It means family love. It means strong affection. Now, these words can be used interchangeably. Neither one of them means less than love. And it might be the case here. It's not necessarily the case that agape is the highest level of love and phileo is like agape minus one. But the word that Jesus uses... Agape is in a lot of ways, it's the closest match to the boast that Peter was always making before. That boast that Peter always had, that my commitment for you is the greatest, Jesus. When Peter said, they'll all fall away because of you, but I will never fall away. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, yes, you will. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me. And Peter responds with, even if I die with you, I will not deny you. So the kind of sacrificial devotional commitment that Peter was always claiming lines up most closely with the word Jesus used when he asks, do you love me? Which is why if you read my little suggestion at uh, like what a broadened translation would look like down below, Jesus keeps asking Peter, are you more devoted to me than these others? Are you lovingly devoted and committed to me, Peter? The way you used to say you were. And so when Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter is not saying less than I love you. But we can potentially see that Simon's old boasting has been replaced with a much humbler proclamation of his love for Jesus. He's no longer claiming more than what's true. Whereas before, when Jesus predicted his denial, Peter essentially said, oh no, Jesus, you don't know what I'm going to do. You don't know, just watch. I won't deny you. But this time, instead of telling Jesus, I know better than you, this time Peter admits that even in the matters of his own heart, Jesus knows better than Peter does. You know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. I think that Peter's learned that it's better to have Jesus, the one who knows our hearts better than we do, it's better to have Jesus know the truth that we really love him, even if that love is smaller than we would like to pretend it is. The command that, just, that Jesus gives Peter to feed my sheep three times comes after this point where Peter affirms his love for Jesus. And that leads into our next point. The love that the gospel produces in us for Jesus will be a love that expresses itself in service. It'll be a love that serves. Our love for Jesus is the motivation behind all of our service for him. As our hearts turn to love God, they also turn to love our neighbors. Now, historically, for Peter and the early church, there's a very specific application here. Because up until this point in their experience of following Jesus, Jesus has physically been right there with them. Jesus has met their needs. Jesus has taught them the truth. In fact, that was the very thing Jesus had done literally on the shore earlier that morning for breakfast. There was Jesus feeding them meeting their needs. So how was Jesus going to ensure that his sheep would continue to be fed and cared for after he went up to heaven? Well, Jesus gives that job to Peter. It's going to be Peter's job to feed Jesus' sheep, to teach them all that Jesus has commanded them. And the promised Holy Spirit is going to be with Peter to help him do that. But it's significant that the command to feed the sheep comes three times after the question to Peter, do you love me? It's as if Jesus is reminding Peter how how Peter has wandered away. How Peter's faith needs to be patiently nurtured and grown. 
The forgiveness and gentleness and restoration that Peter has received at the hands of Jesus, his shepherd, is exactly the kind of gentle care that will be needed if he is going to take care of his master's sheep. And as we're going to see in the weeks to come as we dig into the letter that Peter wrote as a shepherd to the church in 1 Peter, Peter has learned this lesson well. Pastor Dan and I, as under-shepherds here, will have the task of cooking up spiritual food from the recipe that God left us from Peter's pen in 1 Peter. Which brings us to another note about Jesus' command to feed the sheep. The spiritual role of pastor or elder in a church absolutely, absolutely requires a heart that loves Jesus and cares for the church because the church is Jesus's. That doesn't mean that a pastor or an elder always smiles at you, although it helps sometimes, or always tells you what you want to hear, or gives you the kind of food that you like best, or agrees with the sheep about which way to go, but it means that you cannot have a biblical leader, a pastor or an elder or a teacher, who does not first love Jesus, who isn't looking after you because they love Jesus first. The act of feeding and teaching and caring for the church becomes an act of love toward the people that Jesus himself loved and died for. And we could broaden this idea out to all the service. All the service we ever do in church, in Jesus' name. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that when we do service for one another in Jesus' name, it must be done in love. It must be done in love. Don't serve in order to earn Jesus' love. You'll be miserable. Don't serve, don't, don't serve in order to earn the love of the sheep. You'll be even more miserable. Receive Jesus' love for you and then love him back. Let every opportunity you have to do something for others around you be something that you are doing for Jesus, first and foremost. Hopefully, as you serve others, you'll come to love them more too. But the secret to serving others is to serve out of a heart that is, in essence, loving Jesus through those actions. Remember before Peter was told to feed the sheep, he had to be fed and cared for by Jesus first. His love for Jesus had to be tested and humbled. As much as we would love a shortcut, there usually isn't one. We have to learn that through experience. If we're going to care for others, it must be out of a love that we see first from God in Christ. And then only as we let Jesus care for us do we learn to love him by caring others for him. So we've seen that the love the gospel gives us for Jesus is a tested love, it's a humble love, it's a serving love, and one of the most beautiful parts of Jesus' exchange with Peter in this chapter is that we see this love we have towards Jesus is a growing love. The once boastful Peter has humbly declared that his love for Jesus is real but small. So much of what happens in John 21 calls Peter back to remember to remember the night that he betrayed Jesus. Three denials, three questions. There's a charcoal fire that he was warming himself at the night when he denied Jesus. There's a charcoal fire on the beach that Jesus cooks breakfast for Peter on the morning. He asks him if he loves him. The Apostle John was right there on the night Peter denied Jesus. The Apostle John is right there, even too close for Peter's comfort, when, when he's being restored to Jesus. It happened through night at the crack of dawn when he denied Jesus. It happens through night at the crack of dawn when Jesus meets Peter to welcome him back in. The smells and the rhythms and all the memories of that night when Jesus betrayed his Lord are 
are repeated here for Peter. Just as Peter's denial took place under those circumstances, his restoration takes place under similar circumstances. And it's not only Peter's denial that John 21 calls to memory, it's also Peter's first calls to follow Jesus. A miraculous catch of fish reminds him that he once left his nets, left everything to follow his Lord. There's a wonderful message here. When Jesus restores one of his servants, he restores him fully. Not one part of Peter's walk has been left out. His original call is there. It hasn't been forgotten. His failure is there. It hasn't been forgotten. It all matters. It's all included in what Jesus is teaching him and how he will use him. Peter's denial of Jesus isn't just brushed away. Three denials, three affirmations. Even the days that we regret, even the time that we feel we have wasted, Jesus finds a place for that in his role for us. That does not excuse any sins of mine or yours any more than it makes it a good thing that Peter denied Jesus. It was a terrible thing. But it does remind us that God's grace is greater than all our sin. That God can take what was meant for evil and use it for good. Now remember with me, what did Peter want more than anything else to do for Jesus? All of, his, of all his wild boasts for Jesus, what was the most outlandish? In John 13, Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. I will die for you before I deny you. Jesus answered, oh, I tell you the truth. You'll deny me tonight. Peter once thought he would die for Jesus. Since then, he's had his own love for Jesus humbled and brought low. Since then, he's come to see it was necessary for the Son of God to die for him. But now listen what Jesus tells Peter in verse 18. I'll tell you something else that's true, Peter. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Do you realize what Jesus has just told Peter? What kind of death involves your being led to it and your hands being stretched out? Jesus has just told Peter, one day, many years from now, after many years of service, you will be crucified for my sake. It's as if Jesus had said to Peter, I know you love me, and I know you wish you loved me more. You wish you loved me, as much as you once boasted when you said you would die for me. Well, guess what, Peter? Your love for me is going to keep growing. Because I love you so much, Peter, I'm going to get your love for me to that point. One day, you really will love me that way. You really will lay down your life for me. That is how your story will end. When my work in you is done, you will love me as much as you want to. This is what the gospel does in us. It begins by telling us that God has loved us in Jesus. And it turns our hearts away from ourselves and back towards God. The way it was intended to be. And it keeps working. Always sanctifying us. Forgiving us. Picking us up. Conforming our will to his. Shaping us until we eventually look like Jesus Christ. 
If that means looking like Jesus in his love and service and sacrifice and death in this life, then so be it, and the glory be to God. It also means living with the resurrected Christ in glory forever in the presence of the Father. Because thanks be to God, the end result of faith and trust in Jesus, the end result of God's love for us in Jesus, is that our hearts will be restored to the place where we love God the way we're supposed to. And when we're in heaven, we'll actually belong there. Because Jesus' work of turning our hearts back towards God will be complete. And finally, it would not be a Peter story in the Gospels if the apostle didn't make at least one attempt to put his foot in his mouth. While Jesus has been saying all of this to Peter, the apostle John has been following very closely. And Jesus' prediction of how Peter will one day be martyred for the Lord, after this, Peter notices that John's there. And in verse 21, he says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he should remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And the final challenge can be applied to all of us. You are not following or imitating anyone else when you follow Jesus. You aren't comparing your service to Jesus, to what Jesus asks of all the people around you. When Jesus calls you to do something in following him, that is what Jesus calls you to do not necessarily anyone else. In order to possess more and more of a love for Jesus that can weather testing, and a love for Jesus that is humble and trusting and refined, and a love for Jesus that serves, and a love for him that grows, you need to set your sights on Jesus and nothing else. Your love needs to be an absolute love, an exclusive love that has no other focus but Jesus. We all know exactly what Peter was doing there, don't we? Just when Jesus' command to follow him, no matter what, even to death, gets really intense, Peter finds a way to get distracted. What about him over there? Is it the same for him? Is it different? Jesus wastes no time. Peter, you follow me. Eyes on me, Peter. In this way, Jesus' command to follow him becomes the first word of discipleship. That's what we hear when he first calls someone to leave their life and follow after him, it's also the last word of discipleship. Once you've weathered a few storms and proven your heart loves Jesus, the best advice is still the first advice. Eyes on Jesus all through the storm. Jesus says, follow me. Our time is at an end this morning and the first word has become the last word again. It's that all-important question. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Sinner, you can know that Jesus loves even you. But if you would be transformed by his grace, you must be brought to the point where you can confess, Lord, you know, I love you. A heart that's been turned back to God loves God and it follows Jesus. Do you love him? And it close with this verse of poetry by William Cowper. Hark, my soul, it is the Lord. Tis thy Savior, hear his word. Jesus speaks and speaks to thee. Say, poor sinner, lovest thou me? Let's pray.
Lord, you know all things. You know all things about us. And we pray that today you'll give us the grace to be able to say, you know that we love you. There may be some here today who have failed you or denied you or let you down and they need to know that you'll still have them even with the consequences of their failures. Father, search their hearts with them together today and bring them to a place where they know you are for them. Help them to rest in the assurance that because you know all things, you know that they love you. There may be some here who, who have love for you, but it's love that has remained untested. And that test may be coming. So I pray for them that their faith for you would not fail. Even though their own confidence in their flesh and their efforts may fail and sometimes must fail, Lord, I pray that their faith in you and their love for you will never fail and will see them through the storm. There may be some here who have heard about how you've loved them on the cross. How Jesus died to make possible forgiveness for sin, cleansing from guilt, and freedom from slavery. But even though they have heard, they have never truly repented and embraced your salvation. Their hearts have never given way to loving you and trusting you. I pray that now, today, would be the day when someone might be able to say, not just that you loved me, God, but that I love you, Lord. I trust you and love you because of what Jesus has done for me. Lord, thank you that knowing all things, you still love us. And you bring us to the point where we can say we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.